turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26. One thing that I have stressed in this study of this part of Matthew is that Jesus is in absolute control of everything that's happening. Nothing is happening accidentally. Everything from knowing who his accuser is, to choosing the one who would be his accuser, to knowing that there would just happen to be a large upper room furnished and ready for him to take the Passover, to the fact that he's going to be crucified on Passover, even though the Jewish leaders were determined not to kill him on Passover. But he had to die this particular year on this particular day, and he had to accomplish something. And I'm going to be stressing for the next couple of weeks this idea of accomplishment, because Jesus came to the earth for this particular event. He taught for three and a half years. He gathered his disciples. He showed them how to trust the word of God, what we would refer to as the Old Testament. He showed them how scripture had to be fulfilled, how all the prophecies of the Old Testament had to be fulfilled. These things had to happen, and they had to happen in a proper sequence, at the proper time, and so he was in absolute control of every single part of it. He was not a victim, and as I said before, these things did not happen accidentally. He was here for a purpose, and the purpose according to the entire Bible, was to save his people. Now, let me explain what I mean by the phrase, save his people. Because there are really two schools of thought when it comes down to what Jesus did while he was here on the planet. He speaks with the language of certainty. He says things like, to telestai. He says things like, it is finished. He says, I have completed the work that you, Father, gave me to do. He speaks in very definite words as if he has actually accomplished what he came here to do. But there is a school of thought, and really it's the prominent school of thought in much of Christianity, that says that when Jesus gave his blood, when Jesus gave his flesh, that he did it so that everybody, without distinction, without discrimination, everybody would have the same opportunity to decide for themselves whether or not to accept his sacrifice. But the Bible doesn't speak that way. The Bible says that he came to do something definite. When he said, this is my flesh and this is my blood, he then said, these things are given to many for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, his expectation was that when he gave his body and blood, certain people would in fact be saved and they would be forgiven for their sins. So that kind of creates a theological dilemma because if in fact he died for all the sins of all the people who ever lived on the planet, then all the people who ever lived on the planet have their sins forgiven and therefore, God can't judge anybody. So the concept of judgment, the concept of hell, the concept of outer darkness or lake of fire, these are empty words. These things mean nothing because everybody has their sins forgiven. And if their sins are forgiven by the atoning work of Christ, then God cannot judge them for their sin. And so there are two schools of thought, two camps here. One school of thought says... When Jesus died, he died for absolutely everybody, but he made an atonement that was merely theoretical. He didn't actually atone for anybody. He didn't actually save anybody, but he made salvation available for anybody who wants it. Now, we here at this church have talked a lot about limited atonement or particular redemption, and the truth of the matter is, no matter who you are, you limit the atonement in some significant way. If you say that the atonement was merely a theoretical atonement, if you say that he attempted to save some people and he made salvation available for anybody who wants it, 
then you have limited the effectiveness of the atonement. Because you've said it didn't actually save anyone, it merely made salvation available. And then anyone who wants to can choose to make Jesus Lord and Savior of their life, and then they can be saved. Of course, that also presupposes that the other things that the Bible says about people doesn't really count. Because the Bible says that men are sinners who love their sin and that they're depraved, they're debauched, they're willful, they do their own thing. I will not have this man rule over me. That's the natural state of human beings ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden. And so you're presupposing that these God-hating, self-willed people will suddenly, of their own accord and for no good reason, suddenly decide that they're going to choose God and they're going to clean up their life and abandon all that sin that they so desperately love. So you've got another problem there theologically. Now, if it is true, if what the Bible says about human beings is true, if human beings are depraved, if human beings are sinners, if human beings are God-haters by nature, well, then you can't leave it up to the human beings to do anything. God has to do something for these people. He has to change them. He has to convert them. He has to put his Holy Spirit inside them. What he has to do is actually save them. Save them from themselves. Save them from the wrath of God. Save them from the lake of fire. He has to actually do something in order to save them. But then you have to ask the question, well, does he save everyone? Does he do that for everybody? And the very fact that hell exists, the very fact that the lake of fire exists, the very fact that Jesus talked about outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, the very fact that he talked about the worm never sleeping or the fire never quenched, the very fact that he talked like that means that God did not save everybody. Some people end up under his condemnation. So we conclude here at this church, we conclude that when Jesus died, We don't limit the effectiveness of it. He did actually save people, but we limit the number of people he actually saved. We limit the scope of the atonement, but not its effectiveness. In fact, if Jesus died for Tyler, who just said, hmm, if Jesus died for Tyler, then I would be so bold as to say to him, That the atonement is so complete, so effective, that he is saved no matter what. That he is a saved man because Jesus died for him. It is infinitely effective in its salvific work. Do you understand what I mean? So I don't in any way limit the atoning work of Christ in its effectiveness. But... Simple logic would tell us that it is limited in who it saves, in its scope. Now, when Jesus goes on and says the things that he's going to be saying in the next couple of chapters, these things, if they're true, if they're honest, if these men were honest reporters of what Jesus actually said and actually did in the moments leading up to the cross, if these things are true, then there's simply no way to say That he died for everybody. If you're serious with the Bible, if you take the Bible for what it actually says, if you take Jesus' words for what they actually mean, then there's simply no way. Because when he says things like, verse 26, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many For forgiveness of sins. Now he either meant my blood and my body forgives your sins. Or he meant my blood and my body makes forgiveness available. If you just choose to take advantage of what I've already done. And there are many, many people who are preaching. Well, you just take advantage. 
the individual is going to somehow change. They're going to see the value of Jesus. They're going to understand that being a Christian is going to get them a, a better car and a bigger house, and life's going to get better, and they're never going to get sick. And, and since they see the advantage of Jesus, they choose Jesus for their own personal advantage. The Bible doesn't say that. I heard a guy just yesterday on the radio. I'm not going to name any names, but he's here. He's local. He's in Nashville. He talked for a solid 20 minutes. And he talked about how coming to Jesus would get you well, because after all, by his stripes, we're healed. Which Peter shows what the proper interpretation of that is, that by his stripes you are healed is actually referring to the wound that the nation of Israel has undergone, and that the nation of Israel is going to be regathered, regrouped, given their kingdom, and that they're going to be healed as a nation, not healed as individuals, not necessarily get over every cold, or if you have some sickness, you're going to automatically get well. That's not what Isaiah was talking about. But this guy talked for 20 straight minutes about if you come to Jesus, you're going to do better, and your kids are going to do better, and your car is going to be better, and your house is going to be better, and everything in your life is going to be better. You just need to claim it by faith. You just have to go get those things. Except that he never once showed where it said that in the Bible. And it doesn't. In the Bible, you see people coming to Jesus and suffering for it. In the Bible, you see people coming to Jesus and they pay a very high price for it because their devotion, their love for Christ is at odds with the God-hating world. And the God-hating world all too frequently suppresses the knowledge of God. That's what the Bible actually says. So my point is this, and I do have one. My point is when Jesus said things like, This is given, my flesh and my blood is given for the forgiveness of sins. You either have to conclude that he knew what he was talking about and that his blood and his flesh actually forgave sins. Or you have to say he didn't know what he was talking about. What he meant was the body and the blood forgave potentially, forgave theoretically if people would just take advantage of it. Well, I conclude, I'll tell you right up front, just as staunchly and boldly as I can, I conclude that Jesus, the Savior, came to the planet and actually saved some people. That while he was here, he did everything necessary to secure those people so that Tyler can say with great confidence that he is saved. Not that he's potentially saved. Not that we're going to find out if he's saved. Not that maybe he's saved, maybe he's not. But but that he can say with great confidence, because Christ did the work, because the Father accepted that sacrifice, because he's been to the Father, because he's been to the Holy of Holies with his own blood, the blood of the new covenant. Because he did all that, people are actually genuinely saved. But it's not everybody. It's particular people. And once you have that mindset, once you understand that, the world starts to make sense to you. Get that, would you? I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. If it's for me, tell them I'm busy. (laughs) Jeff mentioned men's group last Tuesday. At men's group last Tuesday, we kind of touched a little bit on this topic this topic of the world that doesn't understand us. And yet we can understand them. We know why the world acts like the world. The Bible describes them as acting that way. The Bible says that mankind is fallen and depraved and God-hating. And so when you see somebody like that, when you encounter somebody who actually hates God and everything about God, when you meet somebody who has that atheistic, inability to think clearly and they say things like God doesn't exist and I hate him and you say that makes no sense you can't hate someone who doesn't exist he either doesn't exist and you don't think about it or he exists and you hate him but we understand why the world acts like the world we get it but the world doesn't understand us 
The world can't figure out why we have the kind of faith we have. The world can't figure out why it is that we have such commitment to somebody we've never seen. And so we have an explanation for the world because the Bible tells us about the world. But the world has no explanation for us because their paradigm, their worldview, doesn't include the idea that people would be saved by God, have faith as a result of the implantation of the Holy Spirit, repent of their old deeds, and just live differently. They don't know why we do that. They have no explanation for that. And if we would just quit it, they could feel better about themselves. But we won't quit it. And they can't get over that. They can't get over the fact that the more they oppress us, the more they suppress righteousness, the more that they make laws that say abortion's okay or gay marriage or transgender bathrooms. That's the big one right now. The more that they try to oppress righteousness, the more that we cling ever stronger to the things that we believe because we know the one who actually saved us. And because he saved us, we can't give up on him. Have you ever tried? I've tried. This was not plan A for this lifetime. This was not where I thought I'd end up in my latter years. Preaching his word was not what I thought I'd be doing. But as many times as I've tried to escape, as many times as I've tried to get away from it, I end up going back every time to him and saying, where else do I go? You have the words of life. What else is there? So these words, take, eat, this is my body. When he had taken the cup and had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink all of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I actually believe that he knew what he was saying. My blood, my flesh actually saves many people. So then that takes us to verse 29. Those were extra notes from last week that I just didn't get to. We're in verse 29, chapter 26 of Matthew. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay, now we have to talk about that. Because here he is again using kingdom language. You know that during the three and a half years of his ministry... He would send out his apostles and he would say, go and preach that the kingdom is near. He even referred to it as the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. Go and preach the kingdom. You also know that once he was resurrected, that he got together with his disciples and for 40 days he talked about the kingdom. And apparently never spiritualized the kingdom Enough that it would cause his apostles to actually ask the question to the risen Lord. They asked him, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, essentially, no, not yet. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the father has in his own hand. What he did not say to them is, guys, don't you get it? The kingdom is a spiritual concept. Instead, he talks about it in very physical terms, as if it's an actual reality that will happen here on the planet. The same way that Daniel spoke about it and put it in the succession of earthly kingdoms. The Egyptian kingdom and how there was the Assyrian captivity and how the Medo and then there was the Babylonian captivity and the Medo-Persians conquered the Babylonians and then from there the Greeks took over and the Romans conquered the Greeks and then he said and after that will be a stone cut without hands that's going to crush all those kingdoms and establish a kingdom that isn't going to end. Okay, well that has a great physicality to it. He talks about earthly kingdom, earthly kingdom, earthly kingdom, earthly kingdom, the kingdom. And it's very, very difficult to say right at that moment, we suddenly have to spiritualize what the Bible has said. Well, notice what Jesus has said here to these 12 apostles. 
he has said, but I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. I will not drink wine. I will not drink it again until I drink it new with you, you that are sitting here at the table, until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, there are a lot of theories about that, about exactly when this kingdom came into being. There are some who say it is a spiritual kingdom that actually had its inception at the cross. That when Christ was on the cross at Golgotha, that was the establishment and the beginning of the kingdom. I've even heard a preacher, a fairly well-known preacher, I won't say his name, but you would know it. Uh, He even postulated that when Jesus said, I thirst on the cross, and they gave him some vinegar to drink, some sour wine, he postulated that that was the fulfillment of this verse. Jesus said, I won't drink wine again until I drink it in in my Father's kingdom. And then at the cross, the kingdom had its inception, and then he drank some wine. And so, ta-da, the kingdom is right now. Except that's not what he said. He said, I'll drink it with you. And there were no 11 disciples around the cross taking part of the sour wine. In fact, they were all scattered They had taken off to the four winds. They had done everything they could do to save their own skin. They left him to suffer all by himself. And so again, that explanation just doesn't do it. There is a physicality to the fact that he said, I will drink wine and I'll drink it with you and I'll drink it in my father's kingdom. Now, some people say, well, my father's kingdom is a reference to heaven. So when you all get to heaven, then we're going to drink the wine together, and that somehow fulfills it. But that's still a spiritualized explanation. But here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible teaches. It teaches that Jesus is coming back, that he is going to gather from the four winds all of the Israelites who have been scattered around the planet, and that he is going to establish the kingdom that begins at Jerusalem, and all the Gentiles are going to flow to Jerusalem and that he is going to be the king over his kingdom. And when that is established, he's even going to let the church and his apostles and those people who belong to him have rulership over particular areas of the planet. But he will be David's greater son sitting on David's throne, ruling over his kingdom once and for all in a very physical way. And so if he regathers his 12 apostles after the resurrection and drinks wine with them in his kingdom, that's completely in keeping with what the Bible says. And I only, only care what the Bible says. I don't care about theories. I don't care about spiritualizations. I don't care about some man's clever interpretation. I only care what the Bible says. And the Bible says over and over again that Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back to get his church. And then he's going to establish the kingdom. And when he establishes the kingdom, which, by the way, let me add, He has told his apostles, he has said in the kingdom, in the restitution of all things, you're going to sit on 12 thrones ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. That's a promise that he made to his 12. Do you think he knew what he was talking about? Yes. Do you think he understood that when he said, here's what you're going to do? You're going to be resurrected, you're going to sit on 12 thrones, and you're going to rule over the collective 12 tribes of Israel. Do you believe that he knew what he was saying, or does that no longer count? Now that the church is here, now that Gentiles are saved, does that negate every other promise that Jesus made and that God made to this nation of people? Especially when you consider that Jesus was dying as the Jewish Messiah, and that one of the things he said on the cross is Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you think the Father heard him? Do you think he knew what he was talking about? Do you think that he made a new covenant because the old one simply didn't do it? I do. I think that he made a new covenant because the old covenant, Sinai, which covenant they broke, 
It says that plainly in Jeremiah 31. It says it plainly in Hebrews 8, the longest extant quote from the Old Testament imported into the New. It's all talking about the newness of the New Covenant. And here he has said, this is the blood of the New Covenant. He is establishing a covenant in the things that he is doing. But it's a new covenant, and newness applies to those people who were under the old. The newness of the new covenant is that it's new and it's better in absolutely every single way. It's based in a better blood. It's based in a better priesthood. And it's based on better promises. And as a result of Christ giving his blood for the new covenant, the new covenant went into effect when he died on Calvary. That is all, again, set in the Bible. But Israel, who's under the old covenant, are the recipients of the new covenant. Read Jeremiah 31. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's their covenant. Yeah, we're happy to be saved by grace through faith. Yes, Gentiles are brought in as part of the new covenant. But does the new covenant still belong to Israel? Yes, it's absolutely theirs. So does the fact, I'm going to pick on you again. So does the fact that Tyler is now saved negate all those promises to Israel? No, absolutely not. Because everything God has ever said has to come true. So when he said, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom, I believe that he knew exactly what he was talking about. It's a physical kingdom. It's a kingdom to come, which, by the way, is why in what we call the Lord's Prayer, he said, when you pray, say this, say, thy kingdom come. And what does that look like? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why are we still praying that? Because we're still anticipating the kingdom to come. And when it does, I believe he will actually sit at the dining table with them and will feast with them and they all together will see the culmination of everything that he's promised them. They will get their 12 thrones ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel and he will drink of the fruit of the vine. Otherwise, he didn't mean it. And I think he means every word. You got that? Okay. That takes us to verse 30. So after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. Notice two things. Number one, he's in control. He's in absolute control. He knows not a one of them is going to stay with him. Even though he takes some of them into the garden to pray with him and they fall asleep. He knows exactly what they're going to do. And then notice why he knows what they're going to do. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. That's Zechariah 13.7. And notice again that Jesus has looked back at what we would call the Old Testament. He's looked back at a prophecy from the Old Testament at Zechariah and said this verse right here, just like every other verse of the Old Testament, has to come true. Jesus' commitment to prophecy was, if God has said it, if it's written by the prophets, it has to happen. Okay, now that also leads us to another interesting question, because you've got 12 guys here. Well, Judas is the son of perdition, so you've got 11 guys here who have just been told, you're all going to abandon me. Three and a half years you've been with me, I've taught you, you've seen the miracles, and you're all going to run, you're all going to scatter, you're all going to save your own hides, and you're going to do that because it's written that you're going to do that. And you have to do that because it's written down that you have to do that. How much free will did they actually have? None. They had to do what it said. And then Peter argues with him and says, not me. And of course, who do we know the most about? Other than Jesus and Paul in the New Testament, we get the most complete personality profile of Peter. 
And we know for a fact he's going to run. He's going to deny him. He's going to deny him three times. He's going to swear like an old fisherman and say, I don't know him. Jesus knows that. But listen to Peter. Oh, by the way, in verse 32, Jesus has said, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee, which means Jesus knew he was going to get up again. After I have raised, after I've resurrected, I'm going to go to Galilee and I'll meet you there. We'll talk there. What are we going to talk about? You find out at the beginning of the book of Acts, we're going to talk about the kingdom. But Peter answered and said to him, even though Everyone may fall away because of you. I will never fall away. Me, I. Everyone's going to be offended, but not me. You can just hear the braggadocio in that. Not me. Sure, them. Yeah. Thaddeus never liked him anyway. But me, I'm never going to fall away. So what was Peter's mindset? This is interesting to me because Peter's mindset was, no, I won't. I will never fall away. Now, remember, we're talking about events that took place that night, that very night, within 12 hours. All these things are going to come to their conclusion. Jesus is taking the Last Supper with them. He's going to be tried all night in an illegal kangaroo court. And then the next day, he's on the cross. So these things are going to take place right then. And Peter's mindset is, not me. I don't care what everybody else does. I won't. So we know what his will was. We know what his determination was. His decision was, I'm going to stand by you no matter what. Now, this is in opposition to Jesus saying, tonight, you're all going to run. And Peter says, no, not me. So here you have two wills. You have a clash of the wills. You have the word of God, which says that everyone's going to be scattered. And you have the will of Peter, who says, no, not me. Whose will wins? The will of God. The things that are already written, the things that are in the book, that has to supersede every man's decision, every man's will. But Peter answered and said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you that this very night before a cock crows, you will deny me three times. Oh, not just once, three times. Now, this is very much like Jesus knowing You're going to go into the city. When you go into the city, you're going to find a man who's carrying some water. Follow him. He's going to go into a house. And when you see him go into the house, you say, the master has need of your room. And you're going to find an upper room there. And it's going to be fully furnished. And that's where I'm going to eat the Passover with you. Jesus is intimately familiar with the details, even though he's not there. Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me. And not only are you going to deny me, but you're going to do it three times. And then we're going to read that Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. It's not two. Maybe Peter, by his own decision-making, by his own will, could say, okay, I've already denied him twice. I think that's enough. He's going to deny him three times. It's not four. Once Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times, that prophetic statement has to come true. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you. Notice that Peter is now raising the ante. Notice that Peter is now doubling down on his previous statement. Even though they all deny you, I'm never going to deny you. And even if they kill me, I'll never deny you. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. No, never. No, scatter. No, we've seen you do great things. We've heard your teaching. We've been with you on this intimate level for three and a half years. There's no way we're running away. And then they go to the garden and the soldiers come and the apostles go, run, run, save yourselves. Go. But Jesus has left hanging this very important detail, which is when I'm resurrected, I'll see you in Galilee. 
I'll be there. You'll be there. We're all going to get together again. I know you're going to run. Because theologically speaking, Jesus had to do the atoning work all by himself. It wasn't going to do any good for Peter to die. It wasn't going to do any good even if all the apostles were killed. He had to retain them because they were going to go preach his word to the world. And he knew that about them. So he had to protect them. He had to keep them. But he had to die and he had to do it all by himself. So Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. And then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and I pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. And he began to be grieved and distressed. If you want some kind of insight into the level of torture and punishment that Jesus endured, we have several clues in the Bible about it. Starting with Isaiah, who talked about the fact that the Messiah's visage, which means his, his outer body, would be more racked with pain than any man. The King James says his visage will be marred more than any man. He will be so beaten up, so tortured. In fact, I think that it was so bad on the cross when the wrath of God was poured out on Christ. I think that's the reason for the three hours of darkness. No men got to look on him as he suffered his father's wrath. It was really bad. But if you want some insight into how bad it was... He himself feared for it. He himself was in emotional turmoil over it because he knew what was coming. In fact, he knew what was coming and how bad it was going to be to such an extent that he even said, if it were possible, don't do this. If it were possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and I pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Now, remember this is nighttime. Remember that they've just gotten done eating the Passover meal. They've all got full bellies. And they've been drinking wine all night. And he says to them, stay awake with me. I'm going to stay awake. He knows what's coming. He knows what's going to happen. He says, I'm going to stay awake. Stay awake with me and pray. And every time he comes back and checks on them, they're asleep. Naturally. Fill your belly with a bunch of lamb and then some wine, and then make it night. See how long you could last. They didn't understand the spiritual implications of what was going on, and so all of them became a little dozy, and they all started falling asleep. And so again, Jesus was left by himself. And he went a little beyond them, this is verse 39, and he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible... Let this cup pass from me, yet, very important next phrase, yet not as I will, but as you will. So here he himself turned over his desires. He said what his desires were. My desire is for this cup to pass. My desire is not to be the recipient of your wrath. My desire is not to be beaten and punched and have my beard plucked out and have people spit on me and have them tear the skin off my back and then nail me to a chunk of wood. That would be my preference, is not to do this. But I know that's why I came. I know that's why I'm here. I know that's why you sent me. Therefore, not my will, but your will be done. 
I'm trying to decide whether we should just hand out a couple of verses or whether we should read together. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll read some verses and then we'll do a couple of handouts. Isaiah 51. Keep your finger there in Matthew because we have to talk a little bit about what this cup is because Jesus just says it as if it's a given. We know that it's the cup of God's wrath, but why do we know that? It's because in the Old Testament, Frequently, the anger of God, the wrath of God, is described as being a cup that is drunk by particular people. And so this language of God's anger being in a cup is used throughout the Old Testament, and that's what Jesus was referencing. So turn to Isaiah 51, starting at verse 17, which begins, rouse yourself, Rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. Do you hear that language? He says, wake yourself up. Wake up, Jerusalem. Come back to the relationship you used to have because at this point you're drinking from God's anger which is in his hand in a cup. It goes on, verse 18 says, There is none to guide her among all the sons that she has borne, nor is there one to take her by the hand among all the sons that she has reared. These two things have befallen you. Who will mourn for you? The devastation and destruction, the famine and the sword, how shall I comfort you? Your sons have fainted, They lie helpless at the head of every street. And like an antelope in a net, full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, even your God, who contends for his people. He says, Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. So in Isaiah, there's a transition. Both times it's referring to the cup of the Lord, the cup of his anger, the chalice or the cup of reeling, which means dizziness and rocking and and God pouring out vengeance on this nation. He then says a couple of verses later, but the time is coming when the cup of God's wrath isn't going to be yours to drink. You're going to be the recipients of someone greater drinking that cup for you. So this is all predicted. This is all prophesied here in the Bible. Look at Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25, we're going to start at verse 15. I still hear pages flipping. Jeremiah 25, verse 15 says, For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they shall drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord sent me. Notice that language. It is the cup of the wine of the wrath of God, right from God's hand. So this language of God's wrath being in a cup, being in his hand, and being poured out on nations is language that permeates the Old Testament. When Christ was on the cross at Calvary, he was receiving that wrath. He was taking that wrath as the substitute for the people who actually deserved it. Stay in Jeremiah 25, verse 27. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, vomit, fall, And rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. And it will be if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink. Then you will say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you shall surely drink. 
For behold, I am beginning to work calamity in this city, which is called by my name, that's Jerusalem, and shall you be completely free from punishment? You will not be free from punishment, for I am summoning the sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. So, so it has to do with God's wrath, God sending a sword, God causing death, warfare, drunkenness, and it's expressed as a cup that people have to drink. But fortunately, our substitute took that cup for us. You want one more? Sure you do. Turn to Ezekiel 23. Ezekiel 23. A little background. Ezekiel has referred to Israel and Judah as two erring sisters. And he even gave them a nickname, Ahola and Aholabah. Said they were two sisters all the way back to Egypt. And so knowing that, he can refer here to Judah. After seeing the captivity of Israel, Judah did not change her ways. And so Ezekiel could say this, chapter 23, verse 31. And you have walked in the way of your sister. Therefore, I will give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord God, you will drink your sister's cup which is deep and wide. You will be laughed at and held in derision. It contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria, the northern kingdom. And you will drink it, and you will drain it, and then you will gnaw its fragments and tear your breasts, for I have spoken it, declares the Lord God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, bear now the punishment of your lewdness and your harlotries. Okay, time and time again, all the prophets now, the major prophets have all spoken about the fact that God's wrath is coming on the world, on all the nations of the earth. There's going to be bloodshed, there's going to be sword, there's going to be wrath, and he refers to it as a cup of his wrath, and says that the nations are going to drink of this cup now. Earlier, like an hour ago, I'm nearly done. But nearly an hour ago, I made reference to the fact that when Jesus was hanging on the cross... He died for the forgiveness of sins of particular people, not everybody. So now we're talking about the cup of God's wrath. Jesus took the cup of God's wrath on behalf of his people. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm doing it. It's all about me. It's all wrapped up in me. I'm building my church. And that means that when he drank that cup of wrath, he drank it on behalf of those people that he was in the process of saving. He atoned for their sin and did so in such a complete way that those sins can never be brought up again. In fact, David describes it as as far as the east is from the west. So far will your sins be from me. It's never going to come up again. But... Then you've got the whole wide world. You've got the God-hating world. You've got the people who don't believe in Christ. You've got the people who don't want to have this man rule over me and these people. What about them? Well, they're going to drink the cup of God's wrath. All those descriptors that we've been reading is what God is going to do to the waiting, hating world. So now we're back in Matthew, Matthew 26. Verse 39, and he went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not keep watch with me for one hour? That gives you some idea how short a time span it was. It was only an hour. Jesus is in prayer for an hour. He's in agony. We read that his sweat became like great drops of blood as he agonized before his father. 
because this cup of God's wrath was coming his way. As bad as the beatings were, as bad as the crucifixion was, as bad as the beard plucking and the punching was, the punishment was only beginning. When he got on the cross and his father poured out his wrath, that's when his visage was marred more than any man. It was a horrific moment. And all he asked of his friends was, just stay with me an hour. My soul is in agony. He's never said that, by the way. At no point in his three-and-a-half-year ministry has he ever expressed this kind of agony to his apostles. He has never said, stay with me because I'm tortured by this. And what do they do? They nod off. They all fall asleep. They leave him by himself. And he comes and says, you could not keep watch with me for even an hour. Keep watching and praying. Why? that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he understands that even though Peter in his spirit is saying things like, never, I'll never deny you. I'll stay awake with you. I'll die if I have to. I'm for you. Nevertheless, this is the same Peter who uh, Jesus said, Satan has desired to have you so that he can sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, then strengthen your brethren. He understands what Peter's made of. He understands what Scott is made of. He understands what Jeff is made of. He understands. He understands that he's saving sinners. He's saving weak and sinful people. And he knows that. And now we ask them just Just keep watching and praying because you are going to fall into temptation. Now, again, I assume that he knows what he's talking about. Remember that Satan now has taken Judas. Judas has already taken the 30 pieces of silver. Judas has already made a deal to betray his Lord. So Satan himself is coming to the garden to come and betray Jesus. And he knows that. He knows everything that's happening. And therefore, he can say to them, you be careful. You're going to fall into temptation. Stay ready. Watch and pray. Because your spirit, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Anybody want to testify that the flesh is weak? That was almost too much laughter in the back. I know that's a fact. I know how often I have said, I'm not doing that anymore. And then gone back to it again and again and again. If you want to test the theory that the flesh is weak, don't eat for a couple days. And your weak flesh will cry out and make you miserable and make you hungry and make you tired. And Okay, I'm eating. That's how weak our flesh is. And Jesus knows that. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. I've got to wrap up here. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, he's talking about the cup again, the cup of God's wrath, the very thing that Isaiah and Ezekiel were talking about. Jeremiah talked about it. He says, If this cannot pass away unless I drink it, then your will be done. Okay, I'll drink it. I'll do it. He was the willing substitute for his people. He gave himself over to his father. While he was on the cross, he even cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Why have you forsaken me here as I've become sin for my people? And yet, despite this separation between the father and the son, when the time came to die, he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He still had faith in his father, even though he was racked with pain, even though he had drunk the cup of wrath, even though he had been tortured horribly, he nevertheless had faith in God. There are some people who, if they get sick, there are some people who, if they lose their job, There are some people, if something bad happens, the doctor yanks out the word cancer. They say, where is God in this? Well, he's right there. He's right there in the midst of it. 
Here, here's what I'm trying to say. Years ago, this preacher I will name because I like this comment. John Riesinger had a son who died in Vietnam. And he preached one time, and when he got done preaching, a woman came up to him and said, Brother John, where was your God when your son was killed? And his answer was, same place he was when his son was killed, sitting on his throne, doing whatever seemed right to him. God is involved here. He knows that God's right there. He had faith in his father, even though he was horribly tortured and took the cup of God's wrath. He was willing to do it so that Jennifer could go to heaven. He was willing to do that so that Leon could be part of the kingdom. He was willing to do that because through his whole ministry, he kept saying, it's written, it's written, it's written, it's written. Now that it's written, it has to happen. And it was written that the Savior had to die. And so he was willing. Not my will, but thine be done. And again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. Yes, of course, after a meal and after wine. And he left them again and he went away and he prayed a third time saying the same thing one more time, coming to them and saying, why can't you stay awake? Why can't you be with me? And then he came to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand. The moment is right now. And the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. He knew it. He's in control of it. Right now. This is the hour. This is the time. That thing that I've been saying for three and a half years when I kept saying it's not my time. Now it is. Tonight. Now is my time. And you're sleeping through it. (laughs) This is the most important, most pivotal moment in all of human history. And you're sleeping through it. And then he says to them, Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Next week, we're going to look at his betrayal. We're going to look at Judas giving him a kiss to identify which one it was. So if you come away this morning with nothing else, if you drove all the way from Indiana on a motorcycle just to hear this, if you come away with nothing else, Come away with, number one, he's in charge. Christ was in charge of everything that happened to him, and his father had already predicted it. God is in charge of whatever is happening, even to this very moment. If things happen in your life that seem rough, Jesus had it rougher. If things happen in your life and you want to say, where's God? He's right there in the midst of it. This is what it's taking to get you to where he has decided you're going to be. This is what it takes. I've told this story before, but I'll close with this, maybe. Um, Years ago, I went through a real bad time. This is 13 years ago. I went through an absolutely horrific time. And uh, Elder Ward called me. Elder Ward, who I dearly love, and who passed away a couple of years ago, He called me up and we talked for, gosh, it seemed for a couple of hours. And at the end of the conversation, he said, always remember, Jim, that this is the process through which God is making you into the man you're going to become. I tell that to everyone. When I see people struggling, when I see people going through hardship, when I see people going through sickness, I always say, remember Remember that this is the process through which God is making you into the person you're going to become. I look back on it now, and I think that's right. I learned so much. I learned so much about God. I learned so much about empathy. I learned so much about my dependence on God to get through a a single moment of time that now I look back on it and think, that was actually good for me. But it was hard to go through. And then I read the writer of Hebrews saying, you have not yet suffered unto blood resisting against sin. And that's right. I haven't yet encountered bloodshed for what I believe Jesus did. I haven't yet drunk the cup of God's wrath. Jesus did. 
I haven't been horribly tortured and beaten and had my beard plucked out and had people spit on me and mock me. Jesus did, and that's the Son of God. And I didn't go through all that. He went through all that for my sake. And so Paul could write that we are not appointed to wrath. The wrath of God was poured on Christ. So here's point number two. If you get nothing else, remember Jesus saves. Amen. Okay, so say goodbye to the internet people. By the way, one of them is sitting here in the room. But say goodbye to the internet people. Bye. Bye.